Grace Family Church of Rhode Island presents Word of Hope, a sermon series with Pastor Luciano Cozzi. Welcome. The Word of Hope sermon series is a ministry of Grace Family Church of Rhode Island. It was instituted to bring sound teachings from the Word of God to as many people as possible. Our purpose is to offer you a message that is both practical and contemporary, that brings the Word of God to light in a way that makes sense in daily life. As you listen to this message, it is our hope and prayer that the Lord will bless you through it and bring you hope, comfort, and guidance. And now, Pastor Kotze. Life is wonderful, isn't it? But not every time life is joyful or happy, blissful. I think we can tell. Sometimes we look around and we see heaviness. Sometimes we look in ourselves and we we feel like crying out to God, How long, O Lord, before you come and rescue? Devastation around us because of nature going wild. Devastation, we see devastation around us because people going wild and doing crazy things. And often we find ourselves in situations that are easy to look at as tragic, as really problematic. Much is happening in our lives. There are joys and there are sorrows. There are beautiful, wonderful things and there are very, very sad things that happening. But there are many things that occur in our life and even right now that will cause us to question the faithfulness of the Lord. I have heard numerous times people asking the question, why is God allowing all these things to happen to me? What have I done to deserve all this? And I don't think it's a matter of deserving. I think it's a matter of maturity in the Christian faith. I think it's a matter of realizing and understanding what it's all about. And the reason I wanted to bring up Acts 26, verses 19 to 32, that's what we read today, to our attention is because here we see the example of Paul. The Apostle Paul used to be Saul of Tarsus, now Paul the Apostle. And through his example, I would like for us to learn a few lessons, important lessons, about how we handle those moments in life that could be easily interpreted or understood as even tragic in some cases, or very distressful. I mean, after all, here he is, Paul. They wanted to kill him around Jerusalem, and uh, he barely escaped that. Then he ended up in the hands of Roman soldiers, and that situation wasn't very good. He appealed to Caesar, saying to the Romans, 
I am a Roman citizen. And the Romans immediately were afraid of doing harm to him because it was illegal to do that to a Roman citizen without due process. And so he appealed to Caesar, and that's how he ended up being right here in front of Festus and Agrippa. Now, he's in chains, and I don't know about you, but I will probably be tempted at that time, just barely escaping. People wanted to kill me, ended up being prisoner in chains for having done nothing. I would probably be feeling pretty sorry about myself. I would probably start crying out, Lord, how long until these chains drop and I can be set free again? I mean, after all, it had happened before, didn't it? That his chains had fallen down and apostles were set free. But instead, we see Paul in a different light here in this passage. So I would like to understand the passage a little better. And then with that, understand the lesson that we find in this passage and in the background. So we find that Paul is in front of Agrippa, and he's giving a defense for himself in verse 19 uh, of Acts 26. As Paul is giving a defense for himself, you would expect Paul to say, well, look, I'm here in chains unfairly. I am innocent. I haven't done anything. Why are you keeping me in chains? I need to be set free. But lo and behold, Paul is not saying that. Not a word about that. In fact, he says, King Agrippa, having talked about the vision of Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus, he says, I did not prove disobedient to the heavenly vision. I mean, how could he? And Agrippa would understand that. Verse 20, But kept declaring both to those of Damascus and also at Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, even to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds appropriate to repentance. And then he says, That's why the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to put me to death. So notice that he could have approached this defense in a different way, but he didn't. He turned that challenge, he turned that situation that could be almost despairing into an opportunity, an opportunity for the gospel. Now, Festus did not understand. So there are two, two main characters here in front of Paul, Festus and Agrippa. Festus would not understand Jewish matters. He didn't. And or the Jewish opposition to Paul. He couldn't figure out why that was the case. However, Agrippa did. Agrippa had, was very learned in Jewish matters. He needed to be. He knew very well the animosity of the Jews against the Gentiles, for example. So he was capable of understanding Paul very well. And Paul addresses Agrippa on purpose because of that. So we see Paul here being intentional in the way he speaks. It's not just talking out of the emotions or, or the distress of the moment. He's talking with a clear purpose. In fact, he's measuring his words and he's careful about who he's talking to and how he's talking to make the most of this opportunity. Now, he was presenting the gospel to King Agrippa in this moment and to everyone else at the court that was present with Agrippa and Festus. 
In verses 22 and 23, we find that he had obtained help from God and he stood to testify to everyone, small and great. And he also made a point that he was stating things that were predicted by the prophets and by the prophets and by Moses that they should take place. That the Christ was to suffer and, and because of the resurrection from the dead, he would be the first to proclaim light to both the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. Notice that Paul here is emphasizing Gentiles in every statement he makes, not just the Jews. Now, he obviously stressed that the faith that he was representing in front of Agrippa and Festus was in continuity with the Old Testament times, or the Old Testament religion. That was important because the Romans had tolerated the Old Testament Jewish religion as an ancient ethnic religion. And they, were, they had the policy of not disturbing those. But they would not be very, very friendly toward a new idea, a new sect, or something like that. So Paul presented that Christianity the, the, that he was representing. He presented that to Agrippa as a continuity. I mean, after all, the prophets spoke about Christ. Christ came to fulfill the prophets, and that was the argument of Paul. So if they had tolerated the religion of the Old Testament, then they should tolerate Christianity as well, because it's not, nothing but a natural progression of the same. Now, he emphasized the word Gentiles here several times in every statement he makes, because King Agrippa was a Gentile. So you see what Paul is doing? He's pointing out to Greek, King Agrippa the things of the Jews. He's talking about the prophets and how what Paul is representing here is a continuation or a fulfillment of what the prophets had spoken about. And King Agrippa was familiar with that. But King Agrippa would not be personally involved with it because he was a Gentile. So Paul here keeps reminding him that the promises are not just for the Jews. The promises are for the Gentiles as well. He actually is preaching the gospel to him in person. Now, notice also how Paul presented the gospel. Jesus died for us. He was buried and then rose again. And in emphasizing the resurrection, Paul was sharing the hope of a new life in Christ. So verse 25, in verse 25, we find, but Paul said, I am not out of my mind because Festus has challenged him and says, oh, you must be crazy. What are you talking about resurrection? What are you talking about this, this crazy stuff? You must be out of your mind. You have much learning, and that confirms that Paul not only had much learning, but he was known uh, to the Jews and to the Romans as being a scholar, to be a man with high education. So Festus says, your much learning must have gone to your head. That was a, a, a fairly common way of mocking uh, philosophers uh, when, when they didn't agree with them. But notice how Paul responds with courtesy here. Paul says, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I utter words of sober truth. Now, that a reply, calm as it was, demonstrated that Paul was not a madman or a fanatic. A fanatic or a madman would have been inflamed now and reacted accordingly. But Paul kept his cool. He was calm. There is one lesson in there that for the Lord's sake we should be willing to take the place of madmen 
because sometimes we are considered crazy if we believe in the things that God and Jesus Christ have taught us and revealed to us. I mean, after all, if you don't believe that, at one point there was nothing. And I think means absolutely nothing. And I'm quoting from a textbook from the schools. At the beginning there was nothing, and nothing means absolutely nothing. Now, billions of years ago, there was an explosion. So now the textbook in the school tells me that nothing exploded. Okay? So if you don't believe that, you're mad. You're crazy if you don't believe that. You see, because that's what the educated people of our society want you to believe, that nothing exploded. And, <laughs> and that may be true. <laughs> right? And this explosion brought all things to be, and then they all evolved, by the way. Never mind. Okay. But you see, sometimes we come across as foolish. For the Lord's sake, we must be willing to come across as foolish, if necessary. We must be willing to be regarded as madmen, yes, but not act like a madman. Not act like a, a fanatic. I remember one time I was in the store, and I was horribly embarrassed by an individual, a Christian, who came out. I had a guest, a, a friend, or better yet, an acquaintance with me. And I was trying to be kind and courteous because that's what Christians are supposed to do. And all of a sudden, this Christian comes right up, comes to this person next to me. That Christian knew that I was a pastor, so it was a woman. She wouldn't dare do that to me because she didn't think it would be appropriate to ask me if I accepted Christ. I mean, after all, she knew I was a pastor. She assumed I did, thankfully. But she looked at, at my acquaintance and the friend next to me that I was trying to be kind with, and she went right in her face and says, Have you accepted Christ yet? Don't you know that if you don't accept Christ, you're going to burn in hell forever, and God is going to punish you, and God to do this to you and that? And while she was doing this, she was actually physically jumping up and down. And that went on for 15 minutes, right in her face. When she finally left, I turned toward my acquaintance, or almost friend, that by the way, still today is an acquaintance, another friend, I wonder why. Anyway, but <laughs> I turned and I said, my sincere apologies. I think that was totally inappropriate behavior. And that person said, I understand, with a smirk in her face. You know, we are to be regarded as madmen, but we are not to act as crazy or fanatic people, because if we do, then what would you think of Paul, Paul's credibility would have gone to if he had done something like that? Down to the ground. He, Paul's credibility would have been lost completely. But he didn't. He maintained control, answered appropriately, politely, respectfully, but he said the truth. In verse 26, when 26 we find that the king knows about these matters. In fact, Paul continues to say, The king, Festus, you, you may not know, but Agrippa does. Now this is skill that Paul using. Now he's not saying to Festus, you don't know what you're talking about. He's not saying that. He just simply says, the king knows. And he puts Festus in a, con in a condition that he's not going to argue anymore. Because when you say the king knows... Festus is not going to argue with the king. The king knows about these matters, and I speak to him also with confidence, since I'm persuaded, and none of these things escape his notice, for this has not been done in a corner, but I write out in the open. 
Now, the Romans didn't have much tolerance for things done in a corner, in secret, you know, secretive meetings and things of that nature. And even though later on, when the church was persecuted by the Romans, they had to meet secretly, at this point, Christianity was not secretive and was, and was ignored by some people only because of their biases, not because it was held as a covered type of secret society. It was right in the open for everyone to see. And the king knew about that. Now, notice this next statement in verse 27 and how skillful Paul was in pointing something to Agrippa. And he says, Agrippa, you believe the prophets, don't you? I know you do. Now Agrippa was in the corner. If he accepted the prophets, he would have been forced to admit that Jesus Christ fulfilled them at this point. Now, it is possible to believe facts without regarding them as meaningful. You may know and not argue on the fact that Jesus died for your sins and rose again. But if it is your relationship with him that makes a difference, not just the fact you know that he died for your sins. Knowing that Jesus died for our sins, well, it's nothing new and it's nothing that demons don't know. They know that too. But knowing it in itself and accepting and not arguing with it doesn't do anything. The question that needs to be asked is, do you have a relationship with Christ? Are you in a relationship with him? Have you accepted him as your personal savior, as your personal Lord, your guide for the rest of your life, the one who rules your life? That's the question that needs to be asked. Look at the answer, verses 28 and 29. Agrippa replied to Paul, in a short time you will persuade me to become a Christian. And Paul says, I wish that even in a short or a long time, I don't care how long it takes you, King Agrippa, I'm going to be there for you. If it takes you 20 years, I'm going to coach you for 20 years if you want me to. I don't care how long it takes, but I wish you would be like me, of course, except for the chains. I don't wish you anybody to be in chains. But I wish everyone to be like me, having that relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, what a difference between Paul, I mean Saul of Tarsus, who used to put Christians in chain, drag them in chain to their death, and the Paul now who says, I don't wish anyone to be in chains. Interesting. And some translators even translated that way, seem to believe that Agrippa was only asking that or saying that in an ironic way, like New International Version, for example, makes it more ambiguous and ironic than, than it is in the New American Standard Bible, for example. But the apologetic structure of the narrative in this section here would suggest that Agrippa took Paul very seriously. So the statement that Agrippa made could be an actual statement of fact. He could have actually said to Paul, Paul, if you continue, you're going to make me a disciple. And Paul may have then responded accordingly. I wish. Please, do that. Or it could be that he was actually making a rhetorical overstatement. So then his conviction would not be as strong, but he would realize that, hmm, this is more serious than I thought and make a rhetorical overstatement about that. Either way, what we find in here in verse 29 is that Paul took Agrippa's response seriously. 
Paul did not give Agrippa the benefit of the doubt to, to say that he might have said what he said ironically, or he might have said it as a rhetorical overstatement or an exaggeration. Paul took it very seriously, caught the ball, run with it, you see. And Paul says, I wish that you would be like me, except for the chains. Now, another thing about that is Agrippa said he was almost persuaded. Now, however you regard that almost, let me tell you one thing. Almost doesn't do it. You can't be almost Christian. It just will not do. It's either fully or not at all. We either accept Christ or we don't. We either trust him or we don't. We either, either he's our savior or he's not. We either follow him or we don't. It cannot be almost. It's something to think about. Then in verse 32, we find that Agrippa said to Festus, this man might have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. And here's where many people think that Paul made a mistake. That Paul made a serious mistake in Jerusalem when he says, I appeal to Caesar. I mean, Paul could have been set free by now. And I can see our minds right here being very limited to the here and now, our minds being limited to what's convenient for us, saying, oh, shucks, I wish I didn't make that statement. Can I take it back? I no longer appeal to Caesar. Please set me free. But that was not the mind of Paul, nor the mind of God. Now you look at this trip to Rome, and if you want, do a study and analyze the various stages of it, and you'll see there is one calamity after another. From him almost being killed in Jerusalem, to them being in chains, then being dragged to a, to a ship in chains with other prisoners, criminal, common criminals, and he was in the middle, in the middle of them. The ship being in a storm around the island of Malta, and one of the guards wanting to kill all the prisoners, including Paul, so that he would not escape. Eventually, Paul convinced them that now we need all the hands available. And then they were going toward the beach. But instead of making it to the beach, they found a reef and it crashed against the reef and the ship crashed and split in two. But as Paul had predicted, no one, no one died. They landed in Malta. At first they were worshipped by like, wow, you know, look, these people have been spared and then almost killed by the Maltese. <laughs> okay? Then taken up to Rome, again, in chains. And you know what? It was a prosperous trip. Prosperous not because Paul was set free along the path, but prosperous because he had opportunities to preach the gospel at every single stage and every single step, and he did a great job at that. And because of that, now the gospel was brought to the high powers in Rome and to a bunch of people in Rome. And as he had written to the Roman church, Remember when Paul wrote to the Romans, I long to come and see you. Now he had an opportunity to go and see the church in Rome. It was a prosperous trip, but not necessarily the way we, con we consider prosperity. It's the way God wanted it. It was prosperous because it fulfilled the will of God, and Paul was willing to go along with it. Because God is in the business of turning challenges Calamities 
into opportunities, into golden opportunities to do our work, the work we are called to do. So, rather than questioning the faithfulness of the Lord, Paul saw opportunity and the opportunity that the Lord had given him, and he seized those opportunities all through for the sake of the gospel. So one question that immediately comes to mind is, what is first and foremost in our hearts? Ourselves? Our own comfort and pleasure? Or the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, you go to church on Sunday morning, right? And when you're asking in church on Sunday morning, what's first in your heart, the Lord or yourself? You say, oh, the Lord, of course. Then comes Sunday night, and the Lord is not first anymore. We all go for our pleasures and for our comfort and whatever pleases us. That's called hypocrisy. If we are Christians, that means followers of Christ, not followers of self, not followers of pleasure, not followers of comfort, but followers of Christ. That could mean a sacrifice. But it would be a profitable sacrifice in the hands of the Lord. It's not a wasted sacrifice. It's a sacrifice that leads to something. The entire sequence of events that you find here in the life of Paul could be misunderstood as a tragedy, calamity, something to fight against, something to avoid at all costs. Paul, however, saw it for what it was. Instead of fighting against it, instead of trying to push it away, he embraced the opportunity, used it as a God-given opportunity and make the best of it and make the most of it. And so instead of being a victim of the circumstances, Paul became a hero. The difference between a victim of circumstances and a hero is that the victim of circumstances cries in those circumstances and says, Oh, poor me. Get me out of here. The hero instead turns around and says, Hmm, this is an opportunity. Not a pleasant one, maybe. It's not pleasant to be in chains for the sake of the gospel. But it is an opportunity. And so the hero takes the opportunity and uses it and makes something good out of it, while the victim instead just enters into that self-pity and says, poor me, I want out, please help me, get me out of here. Hello, how long, Lord? It's not wrong to, play, to pray how long, Lord. The, 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 the psalmist did numerous times. But I think you see what we are talking about here through the example of Paul. As you're going through different challenges of life, don't just look at the challenge. Look at the opportunity that God has given you. You know, I want to conclude with that reflection. There are some people in my life that I always refer to as the champions of the faith, the heroes of the faith. And those people are unique. None of them, none of them was in comfort as they touched my life. I remember one of them as I was privileged and blessed by God to follow him and his path of conversion that led to his baptism into the body of Christ. 
he had one arm. He didn't have the thumb in the other hand, the only one hand he had. He had one lung. He had no stomach at all. No, no stomach at all. Suzanne remembers him because she was there with me and she had that privilege of getting to know this man. And one day he told me, it took God this much to bring me to him. But I'm thankful for that. He taught me a great deal. Another one was a woman that had bone cancer spread through her body and her bones were literally disintegrating within her body. She had been in bed for many years, and I remember I was a student in college, and I would go to see her, and every time we would touch her, we would break some bones. All you would see was a kind of a <clears throat> twitch in her face. But then she would recover from that and start joking with you, but not just joking. She was encouraging the students. See, she had her own ministry right from the infirmary in the college. Her ministry was to be an encouragement to discouraged students. I remember walking through that lawn and the path through the lawn from the dorm to the infirmary. As I was going from a dorm to the infirmary, I, I was all dark clouds over me, all woe to me. I got the paper to do. I got this to do. I don't have the money for the bill. The bill is coming due. And I got this problem and that problem and so on. And I remember walking to the infirmary with this dark cloud over me. And sometimes even thinking for crying out loud, I don't want to go to the infirmary. I got too much to take care of. I mean, got a paper due for tomorrow. And I don't know if you realize what it meant for me to have a paper due. I did not know the English I know today. For me to do a paper meant this. Get into the prayer closet and thank God we had those prayer closets. Lock the door in the prayer closet. There's a stool in there. You kneel on the floor and you have a stool in there you can lean on, okay, so you can pray. It's a small little closet, soundproof, so that people don't hear you crying out to God, okay? And you're wailing to God. As sometimes the students, we would do that. But we would occasionally would get a complaint from some other students because I occupied the prayer closet too long. But here's how my paper went. I would go into the prayer closet, put my paper on the stool, and constantly pray the whole night long to try to get the paper done. Because it was a massive undertaking for me, not knowing enough English to actually do it. But I did. So when I, went, I was going to the infirmary, I was thinking about the night in that prayer closet that I had to spend. And sometimes I did not feel going to the infirmary. But I went to visit her. We wouldn't stay more than 20 minutes because she couldn't handle that much. But within those 20 minutes, I would walk out of the infirmary and go back to my dorm. I was walking two inches off the ground. No dark cloud. No woe unto me. I could conquer the world at that time because of her encouragement, because of her ministry. And yet, she was in the worst of circumstances. I remember several other people Another lady, 30 years in the same bed, not even the sheets could touch her feet. And she had an apparatus to keep the, teach, the, the sheet off their body because even the weight of the sheets would break her bones. It's a horrible situation. And yet there is a brightness in there that the Lord Jesus Christ places in people. There is a brightness that turns them into not victims of circumstances, but they rise above those circumstances to be heroes of the faith. Just like Paul did. It's not just because Paul was a superhuman. 
He didn't have a tights and, and cape with a big S in front. No, Paul was a human being like you and me. And in our challenges, in our, in our moments of difficulty, we can turn ourselves in Christ by following Christ, by being in harmony with him, by putting Christ truly first. We don't have to be victim of circumstances. We can be heroes of the faith. We can be bright lights for others around us. We can share the gospel with other people, especially and most appropriately like that. I remember the biggest and best evangelist I've ever had the pleasure of hearing about is an eight-year-old boy that was born with a congenital heart defect that caused him to have surgery after surgery after surgery and after surgery. And every time he went in a hospital for a new surgery, he would share the gospel with the nurses. He would share the gospel with the doctors. He would tell the doctors why he was not afraid. And he says, I'm not afraid because Christ is with me and he's with you too. If you just accept him because he loves you too. And all the nurses and the doctors in the hospital would know, the, would know this little boy and loved him. They didn't spite him because he was talking about the gospel. They loved this little kid because he was so unique. And he would tell them, he would tell the surgeon, if I die, don't worry about me. I'm in good hands. And I don't mean your hands. I mean the hands of God. He's taking care of me. So if it doesn't work out and I don't make it through, please don't worry. I'm okay. See, he wasn't a victim of circumstances. He was a hero of the faith. And so can you. Because if the Holy Spirit is within you, if you are in Christ and Christ is with you, the same thing that these people have is right there in you. But we have to learn to put Christ first, just like they did. Shall we pray? Father, Lord Jesus, Holy Spirit, there are no words to thank you for the hope you set before us, for the calling and for the guidance and for the love, for the salvation, for life that you give us. Please change our hearts. Touch our hearts that we may not be victims of everything, but champions, champions of your gospel, champions of the faith, willing to seize the opportunity instead of just seeing the challenge. And with the opportunity, bring testimony to your grace and to your love. Please use us as instruments of that grace. Guide us in the way you would want us to go. And we praise you and thank you for the honor and the opportunity that you have given us to be part of your body and to share that hope and to share that life with everyone around us. But give us the wisdom, please, to do it in the right way, in a way that is attractive and not offensive, in a way that will produce and bring forth much fruit for your kingdom. And we thank you again, commit ourselves to you, and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.